This is episode number 200, The Evolution and Success of Katerina Nash. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I just want to do my best. My best could be first or third or whatever. I don't know. I just know when I'm crossing the finish line that I'm content with the effort and the way I wrote and everything I put together. I feel good about the effort that went into that effort. And wow, friends, I can't believe that we are on episode 200. That's like 200 hours of podcasting and I'm so incredibly thankful that you've been with me on this journey. Some of you have been listening since episode one, so thank you so much. And if you're new to the podcast, I want to just extend a special welcome, and I'm stoked that you're here with us. If you guys aren't subscribed to my newsletter, you might have missed that Moxie and Grit has taco socks. That's right. Moxie and Grit is my apparel brand, and we have some really fun new designs up, primarily in the taco realm. Everybody loves tacos. Go to moxieandgrit.com, M-O-X-Y and grit.com just to check those out. 2020 has been a really crazy year for the world. There's so many different things that have been happening and it can be overwhelming. And I love the quote that we put up with this episode from Katerina where she says, I just want to do my best because that's so relevant to anything that you're doing. And for me, it's particularly relevant to just being a new mom and trying to continue running all of my projects, Moxie and Grit, the podcast, my sponsorships, training, my freelance writing. It's its a lot. And at times, sometimes I feel like the walls are closing in on me and I'm not going to be able to do things at the same level. And there's other times where I feel really like I'm killing it. And so I always just have to remind myself that I have to do my best. And even if it's not what I had hoped that it would look like at times, Just doing my best is the only thing that I can do. And that's what makes you proud is whenever you just show up and you give it your all, no matter what that all looks like. And right now, giving it your all may look really different than it did last year. I know it does for me and I know it does for most people because with COVID and how different the world is right now, it's hard to know what our normal should be and it's hard to know what our expectations should be. And the only way to feel like we have any sort of control over anything is just to focus on what we can do right now. And if that's less than what you used to be able to do because your kids are at home or maybe you are supposed to be traveling and you can't do that, it's just finding a way to be happy with what you're doing, even though it might not be exactly what you had hoped for. All right, so let's get into today's awesome guest, Katerina Nash. And she's somebody that I have looked up to for years So it was really fun to get to record this podcast interview. She is a timeless force in the sport of cycling. And if you've been following cycling at all for the last, oh, 20 years, I'm sure that you've heard of her. Not only is she a two-time Olympian in mountain biking, but she has also been to the Olympics twice for cross-country ski racing in 1998 and 2002. Her first Olympics was actually at the age of 17, and then again in London in 2012 and Rio in 2016. She's originally from the Czech Republic and moved to the U.S. in 2000 on a college scholarship for cross-country ski racing. 
And if you know her as a cyclist, you might not know that she had the skiing background. Katerina has proven to be among the world's most versatile and enduring athletes, showing the world that women can remain competitive at the highest levels into their 40s. That's right. You'll see her dominating at stage races, gravel races, cyclocross World Cups, and she's in her 40s and she's awesome. She dominates everywhere she goes, even at Downeyville. And she has been on multiple world championship and world cup podiums, both in cross cyclocross and mountain biking. And she's also won the BC bike race numerous times and competed in her first EWS last year. In this podcast, we talked about a lot of different things, but we talked about her youth in Czechoslovakia, Nordic skiing to her first Olympics in 1996, choosing mountain biking over skiing sponsorships and her relationship with Cliff Barr and how sponsorship and her expectations of racing have evolved. We also talked about balance, goal setting, dealing with failure and disappointment, and also the listener questions that you guys submitted. There's all that and more. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. So here is Katerina Nash. Katerina, I'm super excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me excited to be here. <laughs> it's funny, our, our paths have crossed so many times, but I don't think we've ever actually just sat down and had a conversation before. I don't think so either. I think we chatted at the start line of the race here and there, but uh, that's about it. So Yeah, and then I'm like, there she goes. <laughs> so I'm really excited to talk about your background because I think a lot of people don't realize that skiing was kind of your first love before mountain biking. I think it's just so long ago and that story has been told before at the beginning of my cycling career that, yeah, maybe some people don't really know at this point uh, just because I've been a cyclist for a really long time. But yeah, definitely my background was skiing and that's that was my focus from five, six, you know, really focused in high school. I went to ski academy and then really thanks to skiing, I end up here in the United States. I came over on a skiing scholarship. Yeah, and you grew up in Czechoslovakia, which is different now. <laughs> it's Czech Republic now. Correct. Yeah, I always joke around that I was born in Czechoslovakia, and then it split up. So now I'm, now I'm just Czech, not Czechoslovakian. But obviously, there is a close connection to Slovakia, and it's always fun to run into Slovakian people around the world and just kind of, you know, especially for those of us that were still born in that era, we kind of feel like we're still belong together. <laughs> Yeah. And like, what is that like culturally? Because I mean, you've obviously lived in the US for a long time and you see what like American kids are like, but what was it like to be a Czechoslovakian kid? Well, it was, I mean, I had a lot of fun as a kid, not really understanding the political and slightly geographical situation because I grew up right on the border with Western Germany and Austria and we just didn't go and we didn't question it. Like you couldn't go, you know. So as things started to change in the late 80s, early 90s, and you you started to, uh, you know, like open your eyes to the rest of the world, <laughs> you realize what a crazy system it was. But as a kid, it was really fun because we had sort of everything we wanted to do as far as any interest. So for me, it was a lot of different sports, but you could join any music clubs or whatever you may think of any of the interests, it was there for free. There were tons of parents volunteering, uh, tons of coaches for the athletic sports. Like everybody had a little bit 
more time because you couldn't have your own business, you know, during the communist era. So uh, people were around and they were hanging out with their kids. And that's something, you know, I really enjoyed as a kid. Having said that, I'm thankful everything changed and not just the borders, but really the door, (laughs) the door into the world opened up for me when I was a 12 year old. And uh, I never, never looked back, you know, I'm really thankful for the political change and the opportunities that were presented to me and I and I kind of ran with it so you know definitely fun growing up in communist country (laughs) which may (laughs) sound kind of weird but when things changed it became so much more fun because I was like growing up three hours from the Alps and suddenly we were going there you know so that was great (laughs) yeah and like from a skiing perspective too that must have been pretty cool to have that open up for sure for sure I mean I was at that point that you know, even as a, like a junior racer, we suddenly could travel, you know, very freely and easily to Austria, Germany, Switzerland, even Italy is relatively close, five hours away, car ride, <laughs> and then started to explore Scandinavia quite a bit because that's where typically the early snow would be. So I spent quite a bit of time in Sweden and a little bit of time in Norway and uh before I moved to the United States, I definitely got a decent tour of the ski resorts in Europe. <laughs> Jokingly, unfortunately, I was a Nordic skier, cross-country skier, so I didn't do that much alpine skiing, and that's something that I still hope to do in the Alps one day. Yeah, and that's pretty cool that you got to have that kind of experience as a teenager, that kind of travel experience and exposure, because most kids in North America, and in fact, most people in North America never really get that kind of experience in their life. For sure. Like it would be pretty easy to kind of stay in our comfort environment of a small East European country. But I, I definitely was surrounded by people that, you know, the adults, the coaches, they, they were just ready to explore this new world that it was right around the corner. So some of my early cycling trips were, you know, like, Three adults, 15 kids, one car with a little trailer, and off we go on two-week riding trip through Austria, you know? And it was just like, there were no cell phones. We barely had maps. We just kind of had to figure out where we're going and (laughs) make it there. We would set camp in the field and like almost get kicked out by a farmer. Then he would take a pity on us. It's like, oh my God, these Eastern Europeans are just (laughs) dragging these kids on bikes and so it was great, you know, it was really, really fun because I think uh, these younger adults that sort of spend their adult life so far stuck in a communist country and the only places they could travel to is, you know, it was like Poland, Russia, Slovakia, you know, or maybe Yugoslavia was the most exotic place you could go to. So suddenly you could be, you know, all over the Western Europe. So they were excited to go and they were excited to take us along. And that was really, really good time. And you went to your first Olympics as a teenager in Nordic skiing, right? Actually, my first Olympics was mountain biking. Oh, it was? Uh, It was, yeah. It is kind of funny because I was definitely the youngest one in the field. And I I sort of qualified for the pre-qualified, not the actual Olympics, but into the Olympic pool by having a medal at the junior 
world championship and uh, was very new to mountain biking, but I, I really liked it right away. And then, yeah, made the Olympic team back in 96 for Atlanta. It was a huge eye opener, but it really helped me with my next trip to Nagano for the ski Olympics because I felt like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I got this already been there. done that. <laughs> so, and, uh, Obviously, for cross-country skiing, you you kind of have a chance, you know, to do it multiple times because I think at both of the Winter Olympics I competed, I probably did four to five different races. So it's really nice compared to cycling where you just show up for that one. Speaking about mountain biking specifically, you just have that one shot every four years and, you know, slots, lots on the line. So I started everything with Atlanta 96 and then, then sort of finished my skiing career over the next few years before really, really committing to mountain biking in early 2000 with the Luna Pro Team. Yeah, so you ended up moving, was it to Reno on a ski scholarship? And that's what brought you to the United States? I started in Boulder for one semester, and then I transferred to Reno, and I based myself out of Truckee, California. So yeah, I spent, spent a big chunk of my adult life in California. And got my degree from University of Nevada, Reno. And was it weird, like, to kind of shift your identity? I mean, I guess you kind of had multiple identities as an athlete, because, I mean, you went to the Olympics for mountain biking, and then you were also an Olympian Nordic skier. So, like, how did you decide that you wanted to choose mountain biking? So, I was definitely on the path of the, you know, of the more, like, traditional European athlete. I was talented enough and made it through the regional to sort of a national team at very young age and I thought that was my path you know going to the Olympics and chasing that dream and never really thought about the university and I was content to just finish high school and and, uh, had a good structure in place where I could quite easily be professional athlete but just life changed. My sister passed away and uh, really made me think about what I wanted to do. And I, I needed to be a little bit more busy than what a professional athlete can be, like intellectually. So a challenge of like going, moving to, moving around the world and going to university, studying a different language, your second language, or in my case, it was really third language because I was, I was doing a lot of German growing up so close to Germany, Austria, and I did German in school. So it was it was kind of like a good good challenge. So I did you know it wasn't all planned in my early twenties. I just kind of went with the flow, what felt right, and I definitely did not move to United States with the idea that I would be a professional mountain biker. I took the opportunity of skiing scholarship, and uh, getting education was the priority. Halfway through the university, I ran out of my eligibility because I started a little older. And at that point, uh, I just sort of planted the idea of, you know, this mountain bike thing, like, could I, should I, (laughs) should I find a team? Should I try? Because the first few years of university, I would travel back to Europe and like race for my club back home all summer long. And then I would just, you know, uh, gear up for another semester. And so, you know, I never raced in the U.S. on my bike and uh, spending obviously extended period of time here between the semesters. And I just decided to look for a team and was extremely lucky to meet uh, the guys that were sort of putting together 
Luna back then and meet the right people at Cliff Bar and, and start this new chapter. You know, and my idea was kind of finish, finish college, <laughs> ride my bike for a couple of years. <laughs> and uh, yeah, here, here I am, maybe 18 years later or something like that with, with the same team with pretty spectacular career, both mountain biking and cyclocross. So it wasn't the plan, but I don't know, just followed my senses and had a really fun career doing what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And I mean, the way that mountain biking has evolved over the last two decades and the way that teams have changed, it's it's really rare to meet somebody that's been on the same team for their entire career. And it's it really speaks volumes to Cliff Bar that they've, you know, had this program for so long and supporting people and women for so long, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel beyond lucky to not only just to find the team initially and make you know make it on the roster the first year but also just stay throughout the years and you know definitely as far as me as an athlete I had to evolve quite a bit and improve and it's been a really fun <laughs> fun journey with my teammates and people come and go and I'm I'm still the one <laughs> still the one around but yeah Cliff Bar's been definitely amazing and the team is changing you know we have to evolve as a team so we added guys to the team last season and that's going really well and uh yeah i'm excited to even if i'm not on the team anymore i'm excited to see where it goes in the future and always going to be very thankful to cliff bar for the opportunity and the longevity and the support of my career so, I mean, over time, sponsorship has changed, expectations have changed, the amount of money in the sport has kind of ebbed and flowed. So in your experience with what you've seen, like personally, but also, you know, with your peers, how has sponsorship changed and how have those expectations changed since the early 2000s? I mean, I, I obviously don't have as much to compare because I have been working with the same team where I started as a development writer and I definitely developed into, you know, World Cup winner and uh, world championship medalist. But it just doesn't end there, you know? Like, I've actually really, really enjoyed the last few years where my career kind of got to the point that I was happy to race different style of racing and mix it up and not just chase the one same thing over and over. And it's been great to see the sponsorship move into these sort of events. And obviously you have huge brands, whether it's the bike or bike components, and they will make sure they're represented across the broad spectrum. But then some brands like Cliff Bar, for example, you know, they might reshift from the international global racing to more grassroots and all the other things. So I really like the opportunities that are happening for athletes. I don't want to say older age, but more mature athletes. You know, they're not ready to hang it up mid-30s, but they don't want to chase the World Cup anymore. And there's a whole bunch of other racing. But you have to keep evolving. You know, I was just like, you know, I wasn't too excited about long-distance events. It's never been my cup of tea. But I knew if I want to be successful at gravel or stage race mountain biking, that's kind of what I have to work on and improve. 
So I don't know the variety of events and you know where the industry is going. I think it's still very healthy. I think the opportunities are definitely shrinking for people that are so focused on one aspect of the racing. And I'm not sure if there's like a solution for that. Obviously, I wouldn't want young riders be going into, you know, dirty cans, that kind of style of racing. You know, I think it's really good. We have cross-country mountain biking and the teams that are focusing on that. But I think it is very, very crucial to be diversified and push limits and continue to improving a skill set you know like i had won a world cup on the mountain bike and cyclocross but if i stop working on my skills as my technical skills you know obviously the fitness we all know if you don't work on that that goes away pretty quickly <laughs> but you gotta keep evolving with the skills and as the bike's changing so all of that so i think being diversified athlete has definitely helped and it kept me not only on the team, but it kept me in the events where I can earn money. And uh, so, you know, I'm still able at 42 earn a good paycheck being professional athlete. And that makes me pretty happy. Yeah, thanks for pointing out that like longevity has to do with evolution and always wanting to improve at different things. Because um, I actually think it was Jeff. I heard him say that a lot of times when people retire, it's actually just because their mind is ready to retire because they're bored or tired of doing the same thing. So I think it's really awesome that you've been able to evolve the way you have and at a, a really high level of success, too. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, like there was a point in my career where I was just like, if I have to do just this, I probably will look for a different career path. But because things started to change in cycling and in racing specifically with different events, it's been great. Like I said, there's just some events that I'm like, I'm not that excited to do it, but I love <laughs> the fact that I have to figure out how to prepare for it. Like, what do I need to eat in this race? You know, because like, if you give me a choice, I'll go for a cyclocross race any day. You know, it's easy. Like, you don't have to worry about food. You don't have to mess with your equipment too much. You know, you just pick the tires and tire pressure and off you go. But then you have events like stage race, mountain biking or gravel race. And now you're looking at the how much and how often do I need to eat? What do I need to drink? How many calories I need to put in to make it through the race? And how many spare parts do I need to carry? And how am I going to fix all the things that could go wrong? You know, and I do enjoy that element, you know, because it's suddenly forcing you to prepare in a different way than just the fitness. You know, the fitness, like I mentioned earlier, it's just like, yeah, that's just going to be the same. You got to keep keep up your fitness you know you might change the training a little bit here and there over the years but it's just it's just the same thing you're just trying to be better you know but there's all this other stuff that can play a huge role and it's really about the planning so that's been kind of interesting really just challenging myself in a whole new different way yeah I really wanted to ask you how you manage your training because Training for a, you know, 45-minute cyclocross race is really different than training for Dirty Kanza, which is also really different from training for a stage race, which is different for training for an enduro. So, like, how do you... Well, let's be clear here. I am not racing Dirty Kanza or planning. <laughs> so, Starting uh, rumors that, that... here. 
<laughs> that eliminates that 200 miles. But I have done, you know, I have done Leadville. I've obviously done Lost and Found, and these are 100-mile-plus yeah. events. It was a big challenge for me, but as I, as I learned, I think physically I was totally capable of it. It was just more the mental part, you know, because I'm not... I'm not one of those people that say, oh, my God, I just want to ride my bike all day long. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's just go <laughs> ride for a few hours. Maybe go hard. Maybe not even that hard. And then, like, have other stuff to do for the rest of the day. So, obviously, the long events kind of probably more of an emotional struggle for me. Like, how am I going to make it through six, seven hours of racing? Which you can probably just say the opposite. You're like... Why would anybody go so hard for 45 minutes if you could go, you know, this pace for that long? So I, I think the background of cross-country skiing where you race primarily from 15 to 45 minutes, you know, you're looking at the 5, 10K, 15K, and that that's like the bulk of the racing, you know. Like when I was ski racing, I would do 30K once, maybe twice a year, and that's, you know, depending on the snow condition, an hour 15 to an hour and a half, something like that. So those were my longest, by far longest events, you know. So jumping into cyclocross and just hammer out for 40 minutes, to me, that's easy. And that's been easier to train for than preparing for 100 miles. But I understand what my body's capable of. And that's kind of how I built my training. So I definitely have to make sure I I spend some time on my bike and do some of the longer miles. And then with the kind of the top end, it's always been a little bit easier for me to do. I think the biggest challenge in my career has been definitely like the lactate threshold climbing, specifically for mountain biking, where, you know, the, the climbs used to be a bit longer than what we see nowadays. And I was really good for short track. I was really good for under an hour. But not so great for an hour and a half. And that was kind of the most specific training I spent throughout my career is just like climbing, climbing like three times, four times, 15 minutes, three times, 20 minutes climbing. And uh, that really helped me to improve on all of that. And with the long, long distance, I think it's just years of doing it. You know, I'm like I said, I don't do too many five, six hours bike rides, but I can get through a race that requires that kind of distance. I think mainly because I just want to be done, get off my bikes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that th this is an interesting conversation because for a lot of the longer races, the type of training you do is like the three or four, you know, 15 to 20 minute intervals uphill. So the training isn't too much different, but like for stage racing, you, you've won BC bike race multiple times and the training for a stage race in some ways is a little bit different because you have to go hard every day. So how do you change your training from a one day race to a stage race? Well, once again, it comes for me, at least, like I think it comes down to experience and knowing you can do it. You know, I, when I first got on Luna, I, it was pretty common for a lot of the mountain bikers to hit events like Redlands Classic early on in the season, because the mountain bike season would start a lot later than it does these days. And so a lot of the athletes, like my teammate Allison Dunlop, they, they came from road and they really valued that early season stage racing helped them with fitness and sort of the good base miles. And so I do remember as like a 24-year-old heading into six-day stage race in Redlands and wondering how the heck am I going to 
make it through. I've never done anything like it. And then you push your body and every day it just kind of, you know, does the job and then recovers, does, does the job and recovers. And and I think for me, it's once again been like more proving myself that I can, that your body is capable of doing that. And you build up on that. So obviously, as far as mountain bike stage racing, a lot has to do with the recovery between the stages. But, you know, when you look at your training, you go out there and you, I mean, you know, I might do definitely multiple days in a row before taking a day off or something like that. So it's just having that good base to, to believe that you can get through it. And then obviously riding with that six-day, seven-day effort in mind, meaning like I'm not going to be sprinting for every single track like I would in the cross-country event, you know? <laughs> so just kind of like gauging your effort. And I think once again with age comes that like, experience where you're like you kind of like want to sprint for some of those single track sections because it would really benefit you to avoid the crowd or something but like your body's not even letting you do that you know <laughs> like I'm pretty good once I click past the half point marker and then I'm like a lot more confident but the first half sometimes I'm just like okay just pace yourself pace yourself so yeah I wouldn't say just because I mix in so many different things in one year, one season. I don't have super specific training for either one of them. I've raced so much like last year that I can't even tell you if I had two weeks of like solid just training, <laughs> you know. So combining the years of endurance and experience and all of that prepares me for the events. I don't like I don't have the luxury of taking three months and preparing for this or that, you know, like even though I was like heading to BC bike race, I had to do a bunch of spring racing, but I just think of that as my training, you know, and then I did BC bike race and Breck Epic last year. So that's a lot of stage racing. And then you throw in all the Epic rides and a couple gravel events and you're like, whew, I've got my endurance <laughs> training done you know there isn't really much more room to do anything else so yeah it's kind of the balance of managing all the racing and making sure you get some good training in between those two I wanted to ask you about like feeling fulfilled with achievement because a, a common topic of conversation on this podcast and just in general is you know we always have goals that we strive for like I want to finish this race or I want to win a world cup or I want to do this and Whenever we achieve that thing, the bar gets kind of pushed further out of what our next goal is going to be and feeling content with what you've achieved in your career. And you've done so many different things and you have a lot of achievements under your belt. But like, do you ever feel this like unfulfilled? Oh, I, I still need to keep chasing achievements. Or, or how do you like how do you come to terms with your own goal setting or your own feeling of, yeah, just like feeling proud of what you did? It's, uh, it comes down to like a, a having good life balance and having other things in life. Obviously, being successful to a certain level not only makes you happy, but you get to keep your job. You know, like clearly if I don't perform, I, I will not have the job I'm having, you know, or I have to shift my roles a little bit, which is great to have different roles within the 
athletic sponsorship these days. But for now, I, you know, I sign up a contract to be a bike racer and I, I need to do a good job to, to get a contract for the next year. So as long as I'm committed to that job, I'm just going to do a really good job because that's what I always wanted to do. You know, I, I don't have kind of the... <laughs> head for like, oh, I just take these five races and train through it. You know, like if I'm traveling to event with the team, I just want to do the best job I can. That's always been me. And kind of the overall puzzle is that like, yes, I have had a lot of success, but I've been around for really, really, really long time. And so there's been a lot of events or a lot of part of the season or years that didn't go according to my I don't want to say plan, but what I wanted to accomplish. So there's been a lot of disappointment and that's kind of the fuel to the fire for me, you know, because it's at this point, it's not really to proving anybody out there. It's proving to me that I can do it. You know, it's just like, can you do this race or that race or place in top this or top that, you know? So I don't really have too many specific goals. I have to say, I think going into cyclocross season last fall, I, I felt like, oh, gosh, I still would like to win one more World Cup if that's possible or get on the podium. You know, that was kind of my goal. But that was like by far a specific goal. The one specific goal I had for the year. The rest, it's more like I just want to do my best and my best could be first or third or whatever. I don't know. I just know when I'm crossing the finish line that I'm content with the effort and the way I wrote and everything I put together and um, I feel good about the effort that went into that effort. <laughs> so all these little bits and pieces. So, yeah, I definitely don't want to get too wrapped up in the actual result because that's for sure has been a big part of my career. And that's what athletes, that's what we're dealing with constantly. Like we are a number in the result list at the end of the day. But it's really up to you what that translates <laughs> into your personal life and what do you want to do with that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm staying motivated because I think there's only one way to do this job, and that's by doing your best. And the day I, I finish, you know, a race and then, you know, I don't do a very good job, but I'm not bummed out about it. I think that that will be the time for me where I'm just like, well, it's time to move on into something different. Because if you don't care about how you do anymore, that's not good because then you're not going to do a good job away from the racing and preparing. So I don't know if I get to that point ever, you know, or if I end the career some different way. But as long as I care about my performance, I think it's a really good thing. But there's got to be a balance of everything else in life. I don't want to just base my life on results. And how have you dealt with those years? Because you said you've, you know, you have been at this for a long time and there are, you know, months or even seasons where you're just not performing where you want to perform. And some people, when they go through these slumps, they end up quitting the sport. So like, how have you had that resilience and grit to keep going despite hard work? Things aren't coming to your way the way that you hope that they did. I mean, I have to say I've been extremely lucky not to have to deal with any major setbacks like big injuries or, you know, loss of team or things like that. So that's been probably helpful. But once again, it comes down to my personality where if things didn't go well, I just wanted to show to myself that I can improve on that. And I, I believe in the work I've done and I believe that I can turn it around. And I wouldn't say I ever had like an entire season that 
didn't go that well. It just would be, you know, more bunch of events or bunch of the big events. I definitely, as far as mountain bike world championship, I was not a great performer. I was always very consistent throughout the season when it came down to that one day <laughs> effort, <laughs> things seemed to crumble. And so that, that was frustrating. You know, I never really, I finally, I think I finally cracked top 10 at Worlds. Like, you know, my last attempt, you know, on a cycle, great, finally did it, <laughs> you know, but, you know, I was pretty consistent top five racer on the, any given day in the World Cup. So it's always motivated me to do better. And I think I, I was always able to turn things around. And also, I think changing things like, okay, maybe the mountain bike season didn't end perfectly, but that we have at least three to six months of <laughs> cyclocross and uh, I would be able to carry fitness into that and so if something wasn't going according to plan I would go back home and work on it but I would also like look for opportunities to do well in different kind of racing and still make the best out of the season out of the year. Yeah, it sounds like giving yourself a lot of chances to perform and having a lot of races on your calendar so that any one race isn't a make or break has been really good for you. I think so. I think it fits more with my mentality. Like, I don't want to say I'm not good when it comes to big events because I've done a really good job, but I can relate to, you know, Ironman triathletes that do few events a year and then they just have that big you know big one out there I do like racing more you know having more chances to learn to improve to compete and I think that's why I really like the shorter events because you can do a lot more <laughs> cyclocross races than you'd be able to do Leadville's you know things like that so yeah that's a good point so you were just talking a little bit ago about having balance and one of the ways that you've had a healthy relationship with success and goal setting is having more balance in your life. What does that look like for you? Well, I mean, I've definitely dedicated a lot of time to my training, given how long I've been at it and just kind of that prep and focus. But, you know, I try to fit in as much as I can away from the racing. And even the training becomes, you know, I'm at the point that I would rather go join a group ride then um that might not perfectly fit in with my training but it will do the you know 80 90 percent versus just going by myself for this specific ride so i just find kind of ways to keep the training fun and more engaging for me whether it's spending more time on the dirt or doing more kind of social riding with friends, you know, I do obviously make room for those very specific interval sessions, you know, that just, that just needs to get done every now and then, but I don't subscribe to the, <laughs> like, if you're going to ride two hours, you're just going to ride two hours and not two hours, 30 minutes kind of thing, <laughs> you know? So it's, my training's not very like structured anymore, kind of loosely still work with my coach but I've been doing a lot of it by myself and that's been also really fun part of just learning more about the training learning more about my body and then I don't know I hang out with my dogs a lot I walk a ton considering I'm a cyclist I probably spend 10 to 12 hours on my feet every yeah, week do dogs, uh, dogs really help like I, I got a dog last year and I never walked before I had a dog and now I walk all the time and it's just crazy how like that changes you and makes you walk 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's. I think it's just a really nice quality time to be outside, and it's. Yeah, I used to run with them a bit more, but they're older now, so we just do a lot of walking and still hike a bit. So yeah, I always on my feet, and and I drink wine, and I just I just do things <laughs> yeah. that I enjoy, and you know I get more serious leading up to a bigger race, but then. You know, I, I think I look at my career right now as it's more of a lifestyle and there will be few things that you just kind of like, man, I don't feel like doing this, but like that's going to be part of any job. And then you go out and you just get it done, whether it's, you know, the long ride you're dreading or tough weather session or whatever it might be. You know, I, I'm kind of like, well, you've done it all and you know you can so just get it done and move on and go walk with your dogs and be happy. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. Not nothing too crazy. I don't go out like <laughs> getting getting drunk every night or anything like that. But I probably have a glass of wine most days in my you know throughout the year. So, yeah, I think the perspective of keeping life fun and light and realizing that like we're not machines. I think that also helps with a long term career as well because it would be so hard to try to be a machine for twenty years. <laughs> yes. Yes. No. I mean, I. Like I said, there was probably part of my life that I was a lot more focused and I, you know, everything was about cycling and the cycling had a huge priority, but I definitely detour from that. And sometimes older athletes, there's stuff going on and sometimes you're just going to make your family your priority or this or that being priority. And then at the end of the day, as long as you know, the work gets done. It doesn't always have to be the highlight of your day, the training session, as long as the work gets done consistently and you believe in the you know process of doing it that way. I think it's all it's all good. Having said that, like I don't you know, I do appreciate the focus and the specific pressure that younger athletes put on themselves, because that's a really good way to make those improvements, to make those jumps, you know, and uh I was definitely on the same path when I was younger, but it's nice to find a little bit more relaxed balance and do things a little differently nowadays. Yeah, there, there's a few questions I wanted to ask actually about racing into your 40s. You mentioned that on the race course, like you have a different perspective as to when to burn your matches because maybe your matches aren't the same as they were. Like you have a different deck of cards than you used to have. Like what are some tips you have for cyclists as they continue to race, you know, into their 40s to be successful in terms of either strategy or perspective or even like whenever you have years and years and years of racing and training under your belt, you might approach things differently too. Like, so what advice do you have for people who are just maturing as athletes? I think it's kind of individual, but one thing we all start to see, which can be a little bit hard in the beginning, but I'm trying to once again, like, make the best out of it is, uh, you know, I do not recover as quickly. I am not able to put in as much intensity as I used to. And that can be hard at first because you see everybody else just going, you know, like for another good hard day, day after the race, and you, you would just 
barely moving around. <laughs> you know, you need you need two, three days before you can even start training again, you know, from certain efforts. And so that definitely bugged me in the beginning. And I, there are days where I struggle with it, but I just try to look at it. Well, okay, you just get more rest and you don't have, you know, like forget about the total hours per week or the intensity or, you know, like not chasing any any records here. I just I just need to save enough energy for the actual races, you know. And so in general, I wouldn't say I train less, you know, because you can still kind of push your body through the same hours, but the, the intensity has slowed down drastically. And so adjusting your brain to that is definitely has taken me a little bit to adjust to and just kind of remind myself. But it's funny because your body gives you pretty quick reminders, you know, even if you try to like reason with it and be like, okay, I can overcome this and I can do better Then, like two weeks later, you just crashing and you just can't even train. So luckily my thing's never been like, I've never been the huge hours. Like, you know, a lot of my racing in my career has been like an hour and a half to two hours mountain bike racing early on and then adding cyclocross. So yeah, I never pushed through those 30 plus hours a week all winter long. So I, you know, I'm keeping up with similar training hours. And for me, it's more the consistency throughout the year. I don't really take a whole lot of time off. And my time off is typically like I change the activity, but I'm still out there still doing something because I don't, you know, I feel like if I was going to take a month off and do nothing, then I, you know, I would probably take five months to get back to where I was. (laughs) So I'm trying to maintain some level of fitness throughout the year and always, always keep moving, always keep doing something, but definitely changing things up to make it more fresh and interesting. So yeah, definitely Pay attention to the recovery, be nice to your body, and understand that even with the lack of some specific and intense training, there's this huge amount of experience, you know, that comes in handy every now and then, even though you're racing people that are 20 years younger, and they're, you know, they're fresh, and they're really fast and really talented every now and then. All your experience comes in handy, and and then and it feels good to beat the younger generation. But it's probably not going to happen every weekend, <laughs> and I got to be okay with that. <laughs> and speaking of experience, you're a representative on the it's U, the UCI Athletes Commission, and you've been doing that for a couple of years. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's something I sign up for to be a female representative uh, for cyclocross. And I got selected, elected by my peers at World Championship a few years back. And that got me on to the Athletes Commission. And then we actually, as the commission, had to select our president. And (laughs) I got selected to that. So I'm a president of the Athletes Commission, which also places me on a couple different commissions. So there's a, a little bit more work away from, you know, the actual training. It's not necessarily tons day to day work. Our biggest focus is kind of meet up in person and go through, you know, all the different issues. The the Athletes Commission itself is not executive chapter of the UCI. You know, we mainly come in and bring in 
are experiences from different cycling disciplines, and it's obviously very, very broad because of the, all the different disciplines that are under the UCI. And then we can make recommendations, and many of us are also part of the specific discipline commission. So I also sit on the cyclocross commission, which there a lot of stuff gets done, gets accomplished. We actually approve a lot of different rules and we, you know, to a certain point, not everything, uh, we're part of the future decisions of each discipline. And then I also sit, uh, I'm also, because I am the president of the Athletes Commission, I'm also part of the UCI Management Committee, which is essentially the board to the UCI. And that that's a big deal. We meet three times a year and we decide most major decisions that will be taking place in cycling or where the world championship is going to go, what cycling discipline will be added, fight with anti-doping, everything that's under the UCI will be part of those major decisions. Having said that, the all the material is typically prepared by the UCI, by people that actually sit and work in the office on a daily basis. So, How often is uh, gender, uh, once a, gender a thread in this conversation? I don't know what you mean specifically about gender threat, but as far as UCI, they've been really aware of the inequality, so to speak, and they've done a really good job changing things, not only in the office, people that are uh, working at the UCI and the management. Obviously, the prize money is becoming more and more equal across different disciplines. There's a little bit of work to do, but UCI is paying attention to it and making changes. And I think it's pretty exciting to be a female athlete these days because things are only, only getting better. And for some of us that have been added for so so long to see all these amazing changes it's it's great you know and just like i said like the work is never done and i'm not saying that there will be equal number as far as participation and everything as far as the workforce behind all these events but i think as long as it's changing and as long as we're creating opportunities for women to get into these positions and, you know, be part of teams and having more teams. I think that's really what we want to see. Yeah. I mean, and the state of women's racing, especially like when you look at the camaraderie on the start lines now and in the U.S. and, and in Canada, too, like where, where we spend a lot of our time, like it's it's really, really cool to see where women's racing has has gone. Yeah, for sure. I think it's just there are a lot of great athletes out there. And I think that like the one thing that I definitely noticed over the years, a lot of the women, they, you know, they didn't get into the sport with the idea that they're going to get super rich and win a whole bunch of races. <laughs> they they honestly, like, they just love, they love the sport and they were going to do it regardless. You know, they're like extremely smart, educated women that are choosing bike racing for a few years to be their career because they want to be part of it. They want to do it. They always can fall back on their master's degree and <laughs> whatever, you know, and I think that's a, that's pretty rad to see, you know, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's just looking at something like initially is a fun thing to do and to see that so many of us can turn it into a lasting job and, you know, earn money doing it. I think that's, it's super cool. 
Do you have a, a little bit more time for some listener questions? Sure. I got a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. What breed of dogs do you have? And uh, you already answered. Uh, well, do you take them on mountain bike rides? This is the question. So I have uh, two same breed. They're Vichlas, and they used to be really, really good trail dogs, but they're kind of, you know, nine and 10, actually almost 11. So I do not make them ride a bike anymore. They've done their good share of chasing the bike, and it was so fun to ride with them. I, I definitely enjoyed it. But Right now, they kind of like to be the ones that dictate the pace. So we'll just do a lot of walking, hiking, and that kind of stuff. What's your favorite pre-race dinner? I tend to go for something more simple. Not necessarily pasta. I've eaten too much of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, But yeah, I'll go for like some rice, gnocchi, that kind of stuff. I don't do tons of like big, heavy, meaty dinners before events. Just some some sort of simple carbs, but also good tasting food. You know, I don't have like one specific thing. And I think that comes with just traveling around the world and like eliminating that like one thing that you got to eat before the race because there might be day that you can find it and whatnot. So I try not to get into those things like I have to have this. <laughs> this is the only thing I'm going to eat. So, yeah, I'll. I'll eat anything, but I'll probably stay away from like a big steak or things like that. Have you ever lost your temper or nerves in a race? And how did you manage? Yeah, a few times. I definitely, even if something kind of gets me going, I pretty quickly turn back to like, don't waste that energy. Like, you know, like I... I value every ounce of energy that gets me to the finish. So I'm not going to lose it on some <laughs> unnecessary argument. I've definitely watched a lot of people waste a lot of energy and lead to unnecessary mayhem and messing up other people's race. So, yeah, it just, I probably, as far as I've gone in the race, it would be just dropping a, some kind of swear word, you know, something like that. But that's really it. I've approached people afterwards, you know, not to make it a bigger deal, but more like a look at it as a learning opportunity, especially if it was some really dangerous move on somebody's part and um, just have a chat about it. But yeah, I'm not much of a fighter when it comes to this kind of stuff. So, And definitely not in the race. I, I might take it more as an opportunity to get away or something like that. <laughs> Uh, what's the most popular laundry detergent on the Pro Cyclocross Tour? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, that's a, I mean, just finding a laundromat in Europe after cross races where you, you know, you go out and you pre-ride, you go to the start. You, so you might have three different extremely dirty, muddy kids from the day. And it is a challenge. So I, I don't have one brand, but I always buy like, you know, the kind of the, uh, more healthier, no perfume, no chemical-based <laughs> detergents. And they may not do the best job, but I've definitely, I, I've ended up doing a lot of pre-scrubbing. So I pre-scrub my clothes and then I throw it in the wash machine. Lots of, lots of years of kind of sink washing before you actually wash. <laughs> and the pressure washers are great. They do a really, really good job. So if there's enough water, and, you know, time after the race, I try to, like, pressure wash 
all my clothes because those things do an amazing job getting the mud out of the fabric. I think I've seen a video of you still wearing your clothes getting pressure washed after a race. It's it's quite common. Yeah, yeah. Just <gasps> most of the time you get pressure washed with your clothes too. <laughs> if you if you pour a cross racer and you don't have an RV, you get pressure wash outside <laughs> with your bike <laughs> and then you deal with the rest later. <laughs> How long will you keep racing? I don't know. I don't really have a specific plan. You know, I've been I've been on one year contract for probably last five years. I really thought maybe five, six years ago, I was kind of at the end of my career. But then a lot of things, a uh, lot of things change in my personal life. And I kind of came to the conclusion that I really enjoyed it. Also, the industry has shifted into all these different events and the sponsors were excited to go that route. And so a lot of different uh, <laughs> bits and pieces fell in place. And I just said, hey, just sign another year contract and have fun with it. And then I sort of turned that into four or five years of having fun. <laughs> so I'll definitely race through uh, this year. My contract's up again at the end of the year. And I would say by end of the summer, I'll probably revisit that topic with my team <laughs> and see see how I feel, what opportunities out there. And uh, yeah, take it from there. No specific timeline, really. If you had to choose one kind of bike to ride, what would you choose? Probably be some type of like trail mountain bike. You know, at least... 34 fork and a little bit more travel just like i call them like good tahoe bike like something you can climb up to you know seven eight thousand feet but you're gonna have so much fun on the way down versus like you know hardtail that's my choice too <laughs> okay one more um this is kind of a random one but i'm sure you know the person that asked this i said ask her how she loves the Folsom rodeo <laughs> oh you know <laughs> it is one of my most favorite events for sure. So for those listeners that aren't familiar with Pulsum Rodeo, it's it's actually, I think it's a series, but I only show up for the Halloween cyclocross race and got kind of talking to it by my friend a few years back and now it's become our tradition. So it's there's nothing better than night racing in the costume <laughs> with the crowd that shows up for these events. And, uh, you know, of course, there's alcoholic beverages, handouts, and the creativity of people and their costume is amazing. But then there's still the racing element that, you know, like, I still take the race somewhat seriously, but I definitely wear a costume. I definitely take a handout every lap. <laughs> and I just love seeing that kind of community and, you know, adults dressing up and riding around in the small circle for a good time. So yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I know there's a lot of really useful tips and just topics that people are going to get out of this. I hope so. Yeah. Uh -huh. Hopefully I didn't ramble off too much. <laughs> no. Where can people connect with you? Yeah, I'm somewhat, well, I guess Instagram is probably my most popular social media channel. I'm also on Twitter and they both both my handles are Katka Nash and that's K-A-T-K-A-N-A-S-H. I don't know. I don't blog or anything, but every now and then I 
contribute to different things if asked. And there's also the Cliff Pro team social media channels that you can sort of stay up to date on what the team is doing. And there's something really exciting coming out later this spring. So make sure you monitor Cliff Bar and its products. And that's all I can say for now. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Katarina Nash. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button if you want to catch more episodes of my podcast. And you can subscribe to my free weekly newsletter, which is at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, where I send you podcast articles and my best tips every single week. And for those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon and who have left reviews, big shout out. Thank you. I love you guys. And just remember that I'm with you on this journey of growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.